Welcome to another episode of She Rocks Global, coming to you once again from the American corner in Cape Town. Uh, we've got Zoya today making sure that we are on time, taking our photographs. And as normal here in Cape Town, we've got the ever trustworthy and tremendous T Cry, who's at the controls. And I'm in the booth today with Maka. Hello. Hi. And I'm so, so happy to introduce to our audience, Leonie Joubert. I met Leonie as part of the TEDx community, and I don't want to tell or give away too much of your story. I'm hoping you'll share more of that with us. And so, welcome, Leonie. Thank you for joining us on She Rocks Global. Thank you. This really is a rocking moment, I must say. It's <laughs> lovely to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your time. We are so looking forward to our conversation, actually. Uh, we met on TEDx. I listened to your talk. I really found it amazing. So maybe you can introduce yourself briefly to tell the people a little bit about you. So I'm a Cape Town-based science writer, um, born in South Africa, and uh, I'm 47 years old. And I've spent the last, I would say, 17 years writing about um, what we now call climate collapse, ecosystem collapse, um, also food security issues. So, for instance, why the urban food system leaves many of us hungry, heavy and sick how to create happy, fair, more equitable cities, those kind of sustainability things, and increasingly interested in public mental health. And uh, yeah, so I've, I write books, I write journalism, I do opinion pieces, and I'm uh, on the Daily Mavericks um, Our Burning Planet series, which is a, a specialist team of climate writers. So it feels like we're, you know, have a platform to tackle the most difficult, challenging, hottest topic of our times. You definitely rock, I would say, <laughs> just for a start, you know? I mean, I'm like, okay, we're done. <laughs> so, so Leonie, I'm really interested in terms of when we talk about, I think so many of us are still trying to find language. So when I was growing up, we were talking about um, the ozone layer and the hole in the ozone layer. Then we moved into global warming. Then we've moved into climate change. And now you talk to us about climate collapse. How did you actually get into this topic? And then how did you get to this point where you felt the need to start amplifying what you think we need to know? Well, it's, it's interesting. I, um, my first job when I moved to Cape Town, uh, when I was in my late 20s, was as a wine writer with a lifestyle magazine. Very different world. <laughs> and it was interesting, but it wasn't, it didn't grip me. And um, I desperately wanted to get into a subject that was of interest. And I was just fascinated with how the world works. And then a series of accidents happened where I was forced to resign from my job very quickly. I had nothing else lined up. But someone sent me an advert for a, to, for, uh, there was a bursary opportunity to do a master's in science journalism through a local university. I didn't want to do a master's, but this master's gave an opportunity to get onto the SA Agalis, which is the research ship oh. that travels down to Marion Island in the subantarctic, a little island, and it also travels to Antarctica wow. once a year. All I wanted to do was to get to Antarctica. I couldn't get there, but I could get halfway. I could get onto Marion Island. So I signed up to do a master's just so I could get that six-week <laughs> nah. trip. And uh, I started writing. As I was allowed to then travel with a team of climate change scientists who were going down to the island to look at what was changing on the island. And I just went along behind them. This completely green, naive writer just started telling stories about what was happening there. And out of that, uh, a chapter for a, a book a grew, developed in my head. And then I thought, there's a whole book here. When I got back from Marion, I started looking at stories from around the country that would show how climate change 
could impact on the natural environment. And I ended up writing a book and then everything just took off. So it was a series of accidents. 17 years later, I've now been writing about this subject for most of my career. The beginning of this year, suddenly we start to see evidence from the scientific community saying climate change isn't just bad, it is so much worse than we realized. And we have 10 to 12 years in which to radically change our economic system to avert really what is catastrophic climate change. And I suddenly realized we can't just politely use quiet measures anymore. Mm -hmm. We have to be loud and angry. And the media is a load-bearing wall in the, for in, in the healthy democracy. You know, the fourth estate is absolutely critical to shaping public discourse. And if the media is not telling the story, if the media is not telling the story um, responsibly, which it hasn't been, then we are doing our democracy a disservice. And that's why this year, I just feel that we can't edit ourselves anymore. We can't be polite. We can't be timid anymore. I've been timid for 17 years and suddenly it feels like actually we just have to be loud, um, self-confident and actually use language that makes people wake up to the extent of the crisis. How do you find your volume when you talk about we need to be loud? Where's your dial and how do you find it and how do you turn it up? I think it's like a level of outrage that sits in my sternum. Um, and particularly as a woman, you know, women are um, subjected to all sorts of um, forces within society that tries to shut them down or not take them seriously. You know, women are judged first on how they look. The content of their brain is, is secondary often to what they look like. If they present themselves in a way that appeases the male gaze and, and um, is satisfying to the contemporary aesthetic, people like what they have to say. Uh -huh. um, if it doesn't, people don't take their voices seriously. The idea that, a, um, or the, the, the concept that a, the idea coming from a woman's brain is not given as much credence as the idea coming from a male brain outrages me. It makes me so angry. Um, but uh, I mean, that's, a, that's an aside. I think it is harder for women to have their voices heard and taken seriously if they, um, particularly in areas of science, you know, for instance, that's often been put forward as a male dominated world and women are not seen as, as competent. So, um, so part of me, there's, there's this kind of personal and political outrage that, that comes through. And I think if you look at how urgent the climate situation is, um, these kind of um, sort of old patriarchal norms that have tried to control women and tried to get them to behave in a way that is acceptable to the status quo, no more, you know? <laughs> I'm so happy you brought this topic because I really believe that environmental issues and this crisis we're living and gender equality are really like related together and we need to, to fight them both together. And this urgency you are mentioning, like the same happens to me when I speak about gender equality, like something burns inside me. And I also work on some educational um, programs to help the environment and schools in my region. So uh, how, what make you like, You, you talked and we know that in science, it's very difficult to see uh, successful women because I'm sure there are lots of it, but they are not showcased. Uh, how, how would you explain your success, success? What took you here? Like, because we know you're a really well-known science writer, uh, here in South Africa and worldwide. So please, well, what, which do you think are the keys for success in your case? It's a, that's a very interesting question. You know, I never set out to become a writer. 
Um, it happened really by accident in my late 20s. And um, I don't think I'm necessarily naturally good. You know, some people are born with inherent talent. I think for most people, it's just about brain training yourself into doing a skill really well. It's like being a couch potato and then deciding, hmm, in 10 years' time, I would like to run an ultramarathon. You don't get up and suddenly run an ultramarathon. You get up every day and you run two kilometers, and then five kilometers, and then eventually 10 kilometers, and then you've brain trained yourself into doing it. Um, and I think that's really how it happened. I think um, I was passionate about the storytelling process. There's just something that happens in that aha moment where you get a story right that is so invigorating. So that kept me kind of fired up and going. Um, I absolutely love it when I understand a big complex system. And the climate system is like that. The natural, the entire natural world is like that. The human condition is like oh. that. So when I have these, my work allows me to to sink myself into a topic and try and understand these things. So that gives me a huge amount of pleasure. And then, I mean, it's an interesting thing um, sitting down to write is painful and it's oh. hard. But the, that desire for the, that aha thrill moment at the end is enough to push through that, the pain of that discomfort of writing. And I think that's what keeps me going. So, you know, when I look back, you know, after almost two decades of doing this, I don't think that I'm a brilliant writer. Uh, I don't write this incredibly magical prose. But I think I'm good at understanding big, complex things and then explaining it in a way that people can understand. And the joy that I get out of, out of doing that is just enormous. So I think, you know, how to get here, I never set out to get here. But um, I think it's just about being patient and, and a little bit stubborn. You uh -huh. know, and just being prepared to do the, the donkey work. I think there's a there's a, an Elizabeth Gil Gilbert quote. You know, she wrote "Eat, Pray, Love." Mm -hmm. She says, "You know, forget this idea about the muse showing up and giving you inspiration every day. You get up every day and you just sit at your desk and you do the donkey work. That's, That's what it is." How do you? Just listening to, I think, when the beginning you brought it in, and then you know, Maka, you also beautifully brought it in. This idea of to be heard. Sometimes we need to turn into that, dial into that outrage. And I think when you talk about, you know, listening to your talk, and I'm hoping we'll get back to it in terms of TEDx, um, there seems to be so much, so many outrageous things that intersect into this point of climate collapse. So when we talk about um, gender equality, when we talk about social justice, when we talk about food security, when we talk about just general justice, I think this is where this is that big intersection and it now presents itself in, in climate collapse. How do you get to a point where that outrage doesn't eat you up? Mm, that's a very good question because there are days where it does feel like it's eating me up. I think there are only two ways to really respond to that. Because, I mean, it's like being, it's like having a fever and being stuck in a sauna <laughs> where you can't actually get out of the sauna. Yeah. And you have to manage yourself in a way that you don't burn out because I know so many people in various social justice spaces uh. who are just having, their nervous system has to just fight this uh. all, all the time. Two ways. One is to, to write and just to keep talking and talking and talking. And there's something incredible about the, the agency, the potency that comes with finding a platform and using the platform. So that's one, one of the ways of sort of diffusing that, that tension, even though it's, um, it's fueling the fever, it's allowing it to dissipate as well. 
And then the second thing for me is actually exercise in the mountain. You know, I find sitting at my desk, um, it's like trying to trap a five-year-old in her seat <laughs> because she's actually just ADD and she wants to jump up every two minutes and go and make another cup of tea, you know. Um, so I have a huge amount of stress and energy that builds up in the body, and which is partly that outrage. Like, listen to me! Uh-huh. This is crazy! Um, so to burn off that, that sort of energy and all of that cortisol, I get out onto the mountain as much as often as I can. And, and just even if it's just for a brisk walk, you know, to just clear my head and allow uh-huh. that, that tension to burn away. You absolutely... I mean, this is a long-haul battle. You know, if you look at the fights, you know, for, since slavery until, you know, full back, black equality now, this is generations of yeah. fights. You know, none of the issues that we are dealing with on a day-to-day basis are going to be resolved within our lifetimes. We are going to be fighting these battles when we're 80, if we're lucky enough to live that long. And uh, we have to figure out how to manage ourselves and pace ourselves because this is a long-haul fight. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I love how passionate she is when she's talking. And I want to go back to two stuff. Like, you look, and I really believe storytelling is one of your superpowers because we Thank listen you. to that TEDx talk and you are able to talk about really technical uh, stuff, but in a really easygoing, like, people like me that I'm not in science can understand. And I think that it's really important to to close the gap, especially among this crisis, environmental crisis where we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And you also uh, were was talking about uh, this, uh, how you take care of yourself, how you reset yourself by going to the mountain and taking a walk. And I think that it's really important for all of us to do pauses, to find what works for each, uh, each of us. Uh, and you mentioned burnouts. And I know you are really interested in public mental health. And I think it's an issue we are tr- trying to tackle worldwide and nobody has a good answer. So maybe, do you think maybe storytelling may help us to understand these mental issues we are uh, coping with worldwide? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, stories, the, the powerful thing about storytelling, I mean, you know, if we as, as modern humans have been around for 200,000 years, we have been storytellers for all of that time. You know, it's how we um, uh, share knowledge between generations. It's how we connect and build social cohesion. And it's how we build empathy. So we are evolved to tell stories oh. from the very earliest days. And I think one of the most powerful things about storytelling is that it opens the window into someone else's life and experience. And particularly when we are so alienated from each other, you know, from other other. Um, social groups, other cultural groups. Um, we, we don't always know what it's like to live the life of someone who lives in an informal settlement. You know, Storytelling is a window into that person's life and it builds empathy and then hopefully builds uh, a vigor in, the, in another person to fight for the justice of that person. Why the mental health thing is, is interesting, and I'll tell a little bit of my own story Please. maybe. Um, so obviously, you know, mental health is an illness that can't be seen. You can't see it the way you can see a a diabetic reading or heart condition or a a damaged liver or a broken arm. Um, And it's often still quite stigmatized. So we need to obviously talk about it in in a storytelling way that allows us to realize the other person is just normal. They just have an illness that we don't necessarily understand fully. Um, Then why it matters now is... um, in the climate change community, uh, you know, there are, num- there are a number of different sort of scientific chapters and sectors across the, the, the scientific world. 
And obviously, there's a big health component. So health related to climate change is often about the increased risk of malaria, Uh the increased risk of heat stroke, for instance, or um, salmonella and other um, uh, uh, food poisoning related illnesses that might increase as, you know, fly activity increases, all of this stuff. One of the new emerging fields in the in the area of climate change and health is the possibility of emotional collapse. Oh. So um, the next, so the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they every seven years they bring out a big assessment report of the global science. The next one is due out in twenty uh, in twenty twenty two, and the health um, scientists are giving unprecedented space in this new report to look at the mental health implications of climate change. And what they mean by that is twofold. So it's the the acute, so the once off sharp event that Uh causes emotional stress. So let's say your house burns down in a wildfire. Let's say you have no running water for two weeks because of a a drought. Let's say um, uh, you have to flee your community because a a cyclone rushes through. Those acute events could lead to all sorts of depression, anxiety, um, self-harm, domestic violence, even suicidality. Uh-huh. In fact, there was an interesting study that came out recently in Southern Africa showing how, I think it was, um, how drought was impacting um, agricultural le- yields, which was increasing stress at home right. for small farmers, which was increasing domestic, domestic violence. violence. Mm. So that's the acute stress of, of extreme weather events, for instance. And then there's the chronic stress of living in a, in a in the sauna conditions I was talking about earlier, where you are perpetually exposed to the anxiety and the uncertainty of, of a world where climate is unraveling. And, um, I mean, it was interesting. This year has been very, very hard for me because I just had this shattering wake-up experience about halfway through the year which eventually would actually resulted in a medical emergency. Um, I had, um, I'd been, I'd spent the evening in the middle of June on a, a three-hour panel discussion where we were trying to kind of inv- um, invigorate the crowd and get them to realize that the extreme weather events we're seeing around the globe are an indication of, of how unstable the climate's becoming and how it's so much worse than we thought oh. and it's happening so much faster. But the whole evening was geared towards telling people that it's actually resolvable if we just get active now. And then that night I went home and I was sitting on my on my front porch at sort of 10, 11 at night, this beautiful sort of three-quarter moon moving across. Everything was quiet, a little bit of wind blowing the leaves through the street. And suddenly it was like I was hit. It was like a tectonic collision. It suddenly hit me that it it might actually be too late, like properly too late. I've been doing this for 17 years and it's achieved nothing and it's too late. And the reason I, I th- this kind of realization hit is, you know, we've been seeing reports coming through from the Arctic for um, several years now. Oh, sorry, uh, for the past several months, showing the extent uh, of ice melting in the Arctic and the permafrost thawing. Now, this isn't just an extreme weather event. This is actually slipping the whole planetary system across a tipping point that is irreversible oh. and could speed up climate change. And it just, it went from head knowledge to like hitting me in my sternum. And I thought, actually, it it might be too late. What does this mean? And I was completely calm in that moment. Um, A therapist told me later that that is actually shock. That's shock. 
the next day, so I, I, I put on my walking shoes. I was so in alert because of this realization that I just went walking through the streets at midnight. And then I got home and I went to bed and I got up the next day and I went back to my desk as I always did. And then at noon, I, um, I hope I'm not going on too long. No, please at, tell the story. At noon, I was on the telephone to a colleague of mine talking about an ordinary work story. And I suddenly just started crying. I just could not stop crying. And, and I, I said, you know, we've been doing this our entire careers and it's, it's achieved nothing. This is actually getting much worse. Like, wh whatever we do now, it's not going to make a difference. It's over. You know, if, if I die now in 10 years' time, it's not going to make a difference. And she said, you know, honey, you understand that this is a dangerous kind of thought track. And I said, I know, but it was literally like I had a brain concussion, you know, that I, I knew that I needed medical help, but I, where are my car keys? Where do I drive? What do I say when I get there? Um, the reason I tell the story is, so fortunately, my friend who's like very switched on to mental health stuff, she was on the phone immediately. Within an hour, I was sitting with a therapist trying to figure out how to manage this collapse. The reason I told the story is, and I ended up writing about it in the Daily Maverick um, about six weeks ago, is that this is the kind of shattering awakening that is going to start to happen in many parts of our communities as people realize how bad it is. The good news is that there is recovery on the other side of it. So I call it the recovery curve. There's this denial. It's not that bad. We've uh -huh. still got time. This shattering awakening, it's actually very serious. This emotional collapse, um, which can take many forms. And then on the other side of that acceptance is a, okay, so it is that bad. What are we going to do oh. to help each other through how bad it is? And it's taken me about four or five months to recover and get through it. Um, lots of therapy, lots of walking on the mountain, lots of talking with other friends about it, S taking antidepressants for a few months just to get my feet oh. back on the ground. But I think the most important part of that recovery is I had to go and sleep for 10 days. I mean, I haven't taken sick leave in all of my adult life. <laughs> Went to bed for six, for 10 days and just slept. And now it's like I'm back in the saddle and there's just a, this heightened urgency that we have to start telling people how to respond. The interesting um, uh, thing to come out of this whole collapse, I had a long conversation with um, a woman who spent 10 years working as a, um, an end-of-life counselor. Oh, wow. She works with people who are in their last days or weeks. She says what often happens in people in that state of um, is they will go back, they'll accept that they're safe for them since their cancer is that bad and it's actually untreatable. They'll go home to their family and say, I'm not going to do any more chemo. I'm done. The family's response invariably is, don't give up hope. You can't stop. Um, you can, if you just work harder, you can heal yourself. Try this therapy or that surgery or whatever. And actually, this woman said to, this counselor said to me, what that does is it just allows the person to feel more alienated and oh. alone. Actually, what you need to do is allow that person to just properly dissolve into their grief, sit with them, and just accept it. And she said, what is so interesting is in the climate change space, when, when people go through this collapse, invariably there's a pushback to say it's not that bad, you can't give up hope, you just have to... And actually all that does is leave the person feeling shamed and isolated, oh. which has happened to me in a couple of workshops where I've said, you know, actually it's that bad, and the pushback is, no, it's not, it's not, shut up. Um, and so the, the wisdom that comes out of the hospice community and the palliative healthcare community is, okay, so if people do have this shattering wake-up and they collapse... How do we sit with them through that moment of oh. terrible overwhelm? 
so that they can come out the other side and be effective. And that's why, the long story short, why I decided to write about my own collapse this year for the Daily Maverick, to say there are other people that are experiencing this as well. And if we can talk about it and destigmatize this collapse, um, then we can be more vocal about it and more supportive of one another. Um, I've met, so, since writing that article, I have met so many other people in the sort of environmental world who have explained to me that they've gone through very similar um, collapse. Oh. You know, a really potent woman um, who ha has a human rights background and now does a lot of this climate change work, she ended up in bed for six weeks at the beginning of this year for no other reason than she just felt inexplicably feverish and exhausted. And also it came after one of these shocking wake-up moments. Um, I'm just on my way to have coffee with someone who took three months off this year, a really potent woman in the environmental law community, also is just exhausted. Um, so if we can be frank and honest, um, expose ourselves, be vulnerable. I mean, it's you know, just a quick side on vulnerability. I mean, if you remember the Brené Brown talk around um, which she gave on TED, um, which was hugely risky to be that personal. And I mean, she ended up, one of the biggest sort of criticisms of her talk was how she looked, oh. which is so typical oh. of the, the world that we live in. You know, shame, uh, you don't like a, the content of a woman's brain, so you try and shut her down by shaming her because of how she looks. And, um, you know, women are often described as being too emotional, too thin-skinned, too sensitive. That, you know, uh -huh. um, it's completely appropriate to be thin skinned and sensitive because that is what allows you to connect and empathize with other people and be a potent force in your different way. So, um, for a, a woman to um, talk frankly about having an emotional breakdown is uncomfortable some, for some people, but this is, is what it means to be human. You uh -huh. know, we have evolved certain coping mechanisms to deal with living in a crazy world, and that is just one of the responses to being in an abnormal world. So there is a risk of, of going public about something like this, which I realized in the Daily Maverick article that was a bit of a risk, but I thought I would do it anyway. Wow, thank you for that uh, story. Actually, you mentioned all the things. All the questions. We, well, yeah, but also why we are doing this podcast, because mm -hmm. we want to showcase our vulnerabilities, because we know out there there's a lot of women going through the same things we are. So mm -hmm. thank you for sharing. We really think sharing oh, is caring. And to wrap it up, because I think you were so clear on, you shared so many thoughts about you and your story that it's value, so valuable to us. Uh, is there any regrets in your life? I do have lots of regrets. Um, I used to have this opinion that, you know, no regrets, whatever, everything's a lesson. I do have lots of regrets that I, things that I can't change. But what I can do is change the way I respond and behave in future. Um, the wonderful thing that I've realized at my midlife, I'm now 47, is that a leopard actually can change its spots. <laughs> and if, if anything that comes out of, of the many regrets I have from the past, it's that I'm working every single day to change my spots so that I can be more effective and functional and a nicer person to be around and, and, and help other people as well. <laughs> you rock. You do rock. <laughs> I'm loving this conversation. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Um, and so just, I think, final, final thought and to tie it into what I thought we would bring in. But mm. of course, you've just so, such wealth of knowledge and interesting things that you're saying to us. So we connected recently on the TEDx Cape Town Woman platform and the theme for that was bold and brilliant. And so what do you think makes you bold and brilliant? 
Oh, golly. I mean, I, I wouldn't have described myself as bold and brilliant. I've, I've always been quite timid and quite self-conscious and, and over, overly critical and overly self-aware. Um, you know what I think? I, I don't know. I think there's an interesting combination of a, um, this kind of a bulldog character. Um, and I don't know, I guess maybe the way my brain has been trained over the years to think and be critical and to understand the system and what's wrong with the system, the, the, econ the predatory sort of capitalist system, the patriarchal system. Um, studying history at varsity helped me become this as well, to understand what was so uh -huh. profoundly wrong with the system and then how, how we can subvert that. I don't know, I don't know where, the, you know, we were talking earlier about this fire in the belly. Uh -huh. I don't know where it comes from, but it's there. And I think that is one of the things that, uh, that's, I don't know if it is a bold and a brilliant persona, but yeah. <laughs> I love her. You are bold, you are brilliant, and that fire is there. And thank you for sharing. I know this is just a lick of one of the flames that you have in you. And so I think even for our listeners, I really would implore them to go on to TEDx Cape Town Woman and to look for your talk um, because that, that, is bold and brilliant and it, it encapsulates so much of what you know has drawn us to you in terms of the storytelling the breaking down of these complex um ideas introducing us to climate um, collapse and, and introducing us to you so thank you so much for your time and i'll give it to maka to wrap us up no i just wanted to ask you regarding this crisis we're going through and i have the yes. same i feel the same about how to explain people this is urgent and we need to mm -hmm. like really change the world we live what would you say to people in general about it, like something to maybe start their fire inside them. We absolutely have to move beyond the idea that our individual behavior change is going to change something. Oh. This, is, this has to be a massive economic and political change. So that means being an active citizen in a democracy is not about showing up every five years to vote. Oh. It is about being involved every single day in keeping the democracy functional in whichever country you're in. And that means um, keeping an eye on government, on the, the energy policy, whether they are limiting the reach of big business who are in many respects carbon polluters, carbon criminals even, driving, uh, demanding that newspaper, or not newspaper editors, all media houses make this climate story front and center. The media is really in dereliction of duty on, on this regard, and citizens really have to demand. So it's about being political, finding your point of leverage within the system, and then leveraging the hell out of it. Um, it's not enough to just say, I recycle, I, oh. I'm going to stop there. Oh. I'm so moved with this conversation. <laughs> I'm so inspired. Thank you. I really you. appreciate how you expose yourself. and. Thank you. I really hope you should go and check on this lady. She's amazing. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you again to the American Corner, Zoya, for being a timekeeper there. Navisa, I really enjoy doing these interviews together. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank I loved it. Thank you thank so you. much. She Rocks Global is a podcast collaboration produced by Macarena Botta, Nwabisa Mayema, and Zoya Kukic. This season of She Rocks Global was recorded in the American Corner Cape Town, which is also where you will find our sound engineer, Tikrai Gegana. Theme music for this podcast is composed and arranged through a collaboration between South African musician Nosihe and Hannes Segasa from Germany. Mixing engineer is T Luminous. She Rocks Global is a podcast that showcases the stories of perfectly imperfect women from around the world. Should you be or know someone whom you think we should be talking to, 
please contact us through our Facebook or Instagram or Twitter channels. Handle SheRocksGlobal. Hashtag SheRocks. Until next time, keep rocking.